little earlier on this show, I did something of a double feature with Perpetual co-host Rachel, where we looked at two different film versions of Much Ado About Nothing and did a compare and contrast with them. I think it was a pretty successful episode, and I was spitballing uh, other possible subjects later on. Uh, I thought about the Manchurian Candidate, possibly Agatha Christie, maybe another Shakespeare uh, play, and maybe uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, because that original film has two remakes and they're both pretty good and that never happens however my sister cheryl suggested that we do wax work the 1988 film and while digging into it i found that it was a loose remake of a 1924 german expressionist film of the same name and i thought that that would be an interesting one for an episode and here we are so we're going to be talking about these two films one is ostensibly a remake of the other although they don't have that much in common we're going to do the best we can with that my name is ryan this is a real deep dive Joining me on this episode, as mentioned before, is my sister Cheryl. Hello, Cheryl. Thank you for coming back. That's right, I'm back. Ha <laughs> ha! Waxwork has a special place in your heart because we stumbled across this film together while they were doing the final fight scene, and we had no context for it whatsoever, but it just stuck with us. It was a bonding moment that just, it firmed our ties and, and our relationship, and I feel like it's part of the reason that I have such a strong connection with you and love and horror. We're barely exaggerating. This is the sad boy thing. I, I bring in people to talk about movies because that's how I can connect with others. Oh, God. Isn't that how everybody connects with others? It's not. That's not a normal thing? It's, oh. Yeah, shared experiences through the vicarious impact of pop culture. So yeah, we just ground our way through the 1924 version of Waxworks, and then the 1988 one, just back to back. Yeah, that was an experience. Woo! While we were about halfway through the 1924 version, you just stopped and said, can you think of one thing that this has in common with the 80s movie? Um, yeah, I thought it had a lot more in common with the animated film The Halloween Tree than it did with the uh, 80s movie, but I, I managed to make a list. Yeah, there's a list. We, we, we did some reaching, but we got there. Unlike Much Ado About Nothing, where I just recounted the plot of the play, and then Rachel and I talked about how the film versions differed in their interpretations, we're going to have to break down the plots of uh, each one individually. So let's get into the 1924 one, because that was made first. Okay, this one is an anthology film, not dissimilar to, say, Black Sabbath or um, Creepshow or Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. It surrounds a nameless poet who is brought to a wax museum that operates as a sideshow within a traveling carnival. The proprietor tasks him with writing backstories for the attractions at the wax exhibit. And the, the poet signs on because he thinks that the proprietor's daughter is a little on the pretty side. He's into her. I mean, that's why I would absolutely spend a bunch of resources to make wax figures but have no explanation behind them. That's, that's a solid business model. Yeah, bring in some random hobo with delusions of being a wordsmith to come up with some kind of a backstory because spring Jack doesn't have one. Yeah, you need to provide one. Noticing the figure of Varun Elder Rashid is missing an arm, the poet begins there. And this brings us to our first story, Harun al-Rashid. The poet exists in this world as a baker named Assad, who lives near the caliph. Harun al-Rashid is the caliph of, I'm assuming, Baghdad. They're a bit vague. They mentioned Baghdad once, so I think, I mean, you're not wrong, but, like, I honestly think it was a wasp's nest. They were living in a giant wasp's nest. 
the proprietor's daughter is there as Assad's wife. The Caliph is playing a game of chess with his royal vizier, and he loses. He blames this on smoke rising from uh, Assad's bakery, and dispatches the guard, which is led by the vizier for some reason, to execute him. However, the vizier forgets all about killing Assad when he is enchanted by the beauty of his wife. Wishing to escape his life of poverty, and also a little jealous that his wife is so charmed by these royal-type people, Assad is eventually pressured by his wife into breaking into the Caliph's palace at After Dark in order to steal his magic wish-granting ring. All she really says is that she wants more than one piece of clothing, and he's like, well, then I'm gonna steal the magic ring! Well, there's also a bit where he starts canoodling, and he gropes her titties, and, well, he forgot to wash his hands, so now he got flour all over her one dress. Right, that was after the really weird, uncomfortable, sexual meeting the bread dough scene that lasted a lot longer than it needed to be. But the caliph is not in the palace because the vizier has already told him about the beauty of the baker's wife. So he has snuck out, supposedly dressed as a commoner, but he's still wearing his various sultan robes and all of his gems and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, don't you know most commoners are completely, like, dripping with, like, Mr. T-level bling? So while Assad is doing a sneaky sneak bit around the palace, the caliph is in the bakery, attempting to put the moves on uh, Assad's wife. Assad finds the the sultan's bedchamber and collects the magic ring by cutting off his arm. Now, you might be wondering how the caliph could be asleep in bed while he's also trying to mack on this baker's wife, because when he sneaks out, he replaces his figure in bed with the wax dummy. And I was wondering how you knew that in the moment and weren't super confused, but I'm, it's because you looked it up, like, you read about it beforehand, right? Yes, yes, I have these notes here. Yeah, it was not very clear in the movie, and I was beginning to feel like an absolute idiot, being like, what, what's going on? And, mul- like, multiple times I had to ask you to explain the movie that we were watching to me. Assad alerts the guard to his presence and cascades across the rooftops in order to slip away, uh, using a palm tree as a pogo stick. Which everybody that's seen a palm tree once in their life knows, yeah, they're all super springy like that. They're not just, like, concrete-looking mammoths. Now, when Assad is banging on the door because the guards are after him, his wife just delays so much trying to find a hiding place for the caliph, ends up stuffing him in the oven, and he's reluctant to do this because he's read a few fairy tales, he knows where this can go. Assad eventually breaks in, the guard follows him, however, at this point, the wife has been clued in to the fact that the magic wish ring that Assad has is a, is a fake because, you know, a wax figure, but she takes the, the ring and decides to wish that the Caliph is not dead and that he's going to come out back to life and leap out of the oven, in fact. And he does. And everyone's like, Ooh. And she decides to milk this by saying, and now the Caliph is going to make my husband the official royal baker. And I guess out of embarrassment, the Caliph goes through with this. I mean, woman wants a second outfit to wear, so more power to her. This ensures their future prosperity, happy endings all around. And the next bit centers on Ivan the Terrible, who, if you're not familiar, Ivan the Terrible's a terrible guy. He is this brutal Russian czar who delights in poisoning his victims. 
and he employs a, a special poison mixer who writes the names of the victims on an hourglass that is timed to run out exactly when they die, although it's possible that the hourglass literally kills them when it runs out. The movie wasn't super clear about that, and I don't think it needs to be. I, I, I kind of want it to just be the hourglass. It's an expressionistic film. We will be talking about that in the thematic segment of this episode. Eventually, Ivan is led to believe that the poison mixer might poison Ivan himself. This becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when the poison mixer figures out that Ivan's about to kill him, he does write Ivan's name on one of his magic poison hourglasses. Which either means that he's just screwing with him because he knows that he's going to die, so he might as well just mess with him, or he's actually poisoning him. Meanwhile, Ivan is asked to attend the wedding of a nobleman's son. However, Ivan is paranoid about assassination attempts because, you know, he poisons random citizens for fun. So he insists on switching clothes with the nobleman before he attends the wedding, and, you know, he'll drive the nobleman as he's posing as Ivan. This fear ends up being well-founded because Ivan rolls in with an arrow through the heart of the nobleman wearing his clothes. However, this doesn't motivate Ivan to call the wedding festivities off. He's very offended that the bride wants to mourn her dead dad. And he's like, no, let's have music and dancing and revelry. And everyone's sobbing around him. And he's very offended at that. It's just all D-words. It was drink, dance, and then they just... Die. <laughs> that's, our, uh, that's our future action movie title right there. Yeah, uh, drink, dance, die. You heard it here first. <laughs> Ivan overthrows the festivities and absconds with the bride, throwing the groom in the torture chamber once he objects. Now, later on that night, he has decided to take amorous advantage of the bride. Prima Nocta! Yes, we, we discussed Prima Nocta, which is the idea that European aristocracy would allow themselves to take sexual uh, privileges with peasant brides on their wedding night, which is completely apocryphal. There are records of it, but, um, you know, it's like the Irish said that the English did it, the English said that the French did it, the French said that the Germans did it, the Germans said that the Italians did it, so on and so forth. Not saying that European aristocracy didn't get freaky with the help, it's just, you know, not in the laws. The bride spanks Ivan a bit as he's about to ravish her, and he decides to let her go, but it's a trick. See, in order to exit, she has to look in on the torture chamber while her fiancé is being strung up in order to be whipped to death. At this point, she submits. Before Ivan can take advantage, his official royal astrologer, because apparently he's also Tsar Nicholas II, informs him that he has been poisoned. So this leads Ivan to run into the torture chamber to find the poison hourglass with his name on it. And when it's about to run out, he just turns it over and starts it over again. And that's enough to save his life, at least within his own mind. And he just keeps turning it over and over and over again with mad obsession until he dies. And that is what actually happened in real history, ladies and gentlemen. You just saw history come alive. Or at least how I, as I described it. I mean, you described it so well that I saw it in my heart. But also I saw it a few minutes ago with you. Yes, 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 you did. The last bit, depending on who writes the translations for the intertitles, is either spring Jack or Jack the Ripper. That might explain a lot of confusion I had at the end with him as well. He's a jaunty hat, by the way. 
Yeah. After the poet concludes his Ivan the Terrible story, he goes to bed and wakes up to find that the Jack figure has come to life. Jack chases the poet and the owner's daughter throughout the Wax Museum, converging with multiple versions of Jack appearing once he draws closer. The knives come out and go right into the poet's chest. That is when he wakes up and realizes that he's holding a pen to himself. It was all just a dream. All of those double exposures means either ghost or hallucination in the world of German Expressionism. These freaky stories were enough to win over the proprietor's daughter, so they share a kiss as we fade to black. The end. Let's talk about the cast of this film. Emil Jannings was Haruna al-Rashid, the, the Caliph of Baghdad. This is a rare comedic role of him because he's playing something of a chubby cheek buffoon. As you said, he had real pancake makeup thrown on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, total Orientalist caricature of uh, an Arabian Nights type figure. These types of stories were popularized in Europe during the late 19th century uh, with the translation of the 1001 Nights became a very popular aspect of uh, art during that period, particularly within uh, Art Nouveau and certain portrait paintings. And it kept going on throughout that period. Jannings usually played bad guys. He was briefly a movie star in the United States. In fact, he was the first person to ever win an Oscar. What was it for, do you know? I forget the name of the film. It is not something that has lived on. Uh, Jannings is also accidentally responsible for making Marlene Diedrich famous. One of his films was uh, supposed to be a vehicle for him, but Diedrich just stole the show. <laughs> so that is why lesbians wear tuxedos. Oh, that's good to know. Oh, you, you didn't know that? No, I honestly associated it with um, Klaus. Is it Klaus or Kraus? I can't. The, the David Bowie uh, guy with the big bow tie. Oh, Klaus Nomi? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a bit, but um, Marlene Diedrich had a habit of wearing tuxedos, and in one of her early roles, she walked up to this woman and just started making out with her. So that is why, well, masculine clothing is considered a lesbian thing in general, but the tuxedo in particular because of Diedrich. Where Diedrich herself was a bisexual. She claimed to have sex with every famous person who was around while she was alive, everyone from Greta Garbo to David Bowie. And she must have been pushing 70 when she supposedly seduced Bowie, so she must have had something going on. <laughs> <laughs> Jannings, you, you might never heard of him because in the 30s he started making Nazi propaganda films. Yeah, so as soon as the war ended, he became unemployable. He actually asked Diedrich to um, put in a good word for him, but she was fervently anti-Nazi from the beginning, so she was just like, you know, lie in the bed you've made for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next person to talk about, Conrad Veidt is Ivan the Terrible. Can you say his name again? Conrad Veidt. That is a really delightful name. His first major role was in the Cabinet of Caligari. He was Caesar, the sleepwalking serial killer. Beef and fan of the Paradise is modeled after him. Hashtag Beef did nothing wrong. Beef did nothing wrong! His performance as Ivan the Terrible was an influence on Sergei Eisenstein's uh, Ivan the Terrible film. Eisenstein is best known for Battleship Potemkin. However, Ivan the Terrible became infamous because that film was never allowed to be finished because Joseph Stalin saw it as a thinly veiled critique of himself. And he was right. <laughs> Veidt worked with director Paul Linney after this on The Man Who Laughs, which is arguably his most influential role. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. You don't even have to ask. I'm not. Just assume that I'm not. Okay, he plays a man, uh, a poor wretch, who 
has been hideously scarred on both sides of his mouth so that he has a rictus grin at any given moment. No prizes for guessing which fictional supervillain is modeled after that. So wait, what's his name? Because I know the name of the smile. Is it the same? Yeah. I don't know it off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I'm familiar with the name of the smile. I got too excited. The name fell out of my brain. All right. Moving All right. on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> Werner Krauss is Jack the Ripper. He was also in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He was Dr. Caligari. Ooh. Yeah, we'll, we'll be talking a bit more about uh, this film's connections to Caligari and you pretty shortly. And finally, we got William Dieter is the poet. He's also the baker and the nobleman's son during the Ivan the Terrible bit. After he fled Germany in the 30s, I don't need to tell you why, I don't mm. think. Yeah, he became a Hollywood director. He actually co-directed this film, Uncredited. He was responsible for the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame starring Charles Lawton, and he directed The Life of Emile Zola, which isn't a huge film in the popular memory these days, but it won an Oscar for Best Picture, so I, I guess it was popular in its day. For the production of this film, while Germany was one of the few countries who had a functioning film studio after World War One and could, at least on paper, compete with American studios. They did not have the money or the resources to be the Hollywood factory. This is probably one of the reasons why they turned to expressionism to begin with, because you could use cheap sets and then claim that it's an artistic choice. That explains the, like, the waspness. Uh, yeah, this film ran out of money. That is why the spring Jack, Jack the Ripper scene is like three minutes long, whereas the other ones are about 20 or 30. They initially wanted to have a much longer bit focused on uh, Ronaldo uh, Rinaldini, character from a 1798 novel by Christian August uh, Vulpes. The character was going to be played by uh, Dieterle, but you know they couldn't end up doing it. The uh, Rinaldini figure is, however, in the Wax Museum. He's the guy in the in the black conical hat that you are admiring. I really want a hat like that, actually, like a lot. Like put aside the pilgrim hat with the buckle. Like that's my new ideal. Some people have claimed that the uh, initial bit with the uh, Arabian Nights folklore was ripped off by Douglas Fairbanks in his silent version of The Thief of Baghdad. However, that is unlikely. Both films were made at roughly the same time, and Waxworks didn't get an American release until 1926, a year after A Thief of Baghdad came out. Although, interestingly enough, when The Thief of Baghdad got a remake in 1940, Conrad Veidt was in that as the villain. He was Jafar, the royal vizier who hypnotized the dumb sultan with his snake staff. So Conrad Veidt was two fictional supervillains you've heard of. <laughs> now, like I said, there's a lot of similarities between this and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You know, deliberately artificial sets because expressionism is one of those big tent artistic movements where it has so many different definitions that the term is almost meaningless according to some people but when you get to the heart of it the idea is that emotional honesty and tone are more important than realism that's so beautiful i want that to be true backgrounds are supposed to represent the psychological state of the characters rather than, you know, literal actual things. The painting movement, it was drawn from the work of post-impressionists, particularly Vincent van Gogh. Um, you know, the idea of photography is basically ruined realistic portrait painting, so you should draw from within and put your psyche on the canvas. Expressionist films are supposed to be the cinematic equivalent of that sort of thing. 
trying to marry the two concepts together. I get it, I get it. Yeah, and also, they don't have enough money for convincing sets. Let's have deliberately fake-looking ones. Which also worked for Tim Burton and Sam Raimi uh, decades later. Okay, fair. And uh, another thing uh, it has in common with Caligari, this film has a sort of twist ending. Cabinet of Caligari is arguably the first movie to have a twist ending, the first that we know of anyways. This one has a, it was all a dream. Weird, flirty-induced, carnival dream. Now, there are a number of themes within this film. Tyranny and oppression are in there. I mean, the, the Caliph of Baghdad is a tyrannical figure, although a buffoonish one. Ivan the Terrible, obviously. At the conclusion of World War One, a lot of things that were seemingly unconquerable turned out to be very brittle. And in retrospect, their fall was inevitable. Uh, now, obviously, the German aristocracy still remained in some area. The Nazis had to find politically conservative people to collaborate with in order to seize power. However, a lot of the pomp and circumstance surrounding it had fallen. And expressionists, I think, were kind of poking fun at it. It is not hard to look at the Caliph figure and Ivan the Terrible and see it as a sort of, oh, yeah, not so high and mighty now, are you, Kaiser? <laughs> But then you get back to dream logic. The Expressionists were big readers of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, in addition to Marx, hence the anti-authoritarian aspects of this, at least in terms of traditional monarchy figures. And aspects of transformation, you know, since the poet gets to be a number of people in this, you could have that be a symbolic thing or the fact that the film couldn't afford to hire more actors. Have it both ways. Have your cake and eat it too. All right, so before we move on to the 1988 film, is there anything you'd like to add about Waxworks? Uh, um, no, no, that's okay. We, we can move on to the 80s one, please. Okay, the 80s one. Yeah! The writer and director of this, uh, Anthony uh, Hickox, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, he has explicitly said that he intended this film to be a remake of the film I just described to you. I'm pretty sure he's never seen it before in his entire life. The 1988 waxwork, it is singular, whereas the German one is plural, waxworks, surrounds suburban teenagers Mark, China, Sarah, Gemma, James, and Tony. They visit a mysterious wax museum after a taciturn gentleman extended an invite to Sarah and China. They encounter several macabre exhibits, each featuring boilerplate elements of the horror genre. Like there's an invasion of the body snatchers one, there's a zombie one, there's a werewolf one, there's a Frankenstein monster one. You get the idea. You know what horror movies look like. You've been in a Halloween store. Now, Tony and China unintentionally cross over into separate pocket universes by walking past the exhibit's barrier ropes. Tony is attacked by a werewolf, but is interrupted by a father and son returning from a hunting trip. The son is mauled to death, he's torn in half by the werewolf, and Tony is killed by the father as soon as he transforms after his werewolf bite. Wait a second, those two are related? He specifically told his son, go distract that werewolf while I load bullets into my gun? What an- he's a bad dad. A very bad father. Also, the son is the director's brother in real life. Oh, that's kind of cute. Yeah, gave his brother a little role getting torn in half by a werewolf. Now, China is transported to a gothic castle and bumps into a dinner party being hosted by uh, Dracula. Now, this is a sexy Dracula. Oh, yeah, he's got, like, the most gorgeous, intense green eyes you've ever seen. Just gonna look for excuses to do that, huh? All night, it's so much fun. 
She has a meal of raw meat with blood poured over on it, but doesn't get suspicious until Dracula's son tries to bite her. She bumps into her fiancé, who was part of the entree. Vampires attack her. Lots of gore is put out. Vampires are impaled on champagne bottles, which is pretty rad. You're not even going to say it was a pleasure to meet you joke? Like, not... Fine, we'll skip over it. Well, we don't have to skip over it, you just did it. China's turned into a vampire, which is a, a bummer for Mark because he had a thing for her. This is barely a subplot, it felt the need to have one. A collegiate jock named Jonathan, you could tell he's a roughneck because, well, he's a quarterback for the college football team. Instead of throwing the football, he just punches linebackers. Like yep. that, that's allowed. He enters the museum looking for China because he, he, you know, he wants to get laid. But uh, he is distracted by a display for the fan of the opera. Uh, David Lincoln, the man who invited the teens, lures Jonathan into the display and he is quickly dispatched. Mark smells a rat after he tries to put the moves on Sarah because China rejected him and he wants to settle for her and Sarah doesn't find this terribly attractive. Yeah, she was pretty clear that, like, she's like, oh, I find you incredibly attractive, but no thank you. Yeah, yeah, dude, come on. The lack of sexual tension between them is almost palpable. I could feel it coming from the screen, and it's never referenced in the film again. I'm not sure why in this particular moment they felt they need to push them together, but there we have it. Mark, because he's unaware that he's a teenager in a horror movie, compels two skeptical police officers to question the museum's proprietor. This doesn't go terribly well, although the more aggressive skeptical police officer does eventually realize that a lot of the victims in the wax museum are similar to the dozens of missing people in town, and Mark recognizes Lincoln from something as he leaves. Mark pulls Sarah out of class by faking some kind of, like, stomach problem. He just couldn't wait another, like, 15 minutes for the lecture to end. Everybody in the scene is pained by his terrible excuse, including the professor, who doubles over his podium. He reveals to Sarah through newspaper clippings in the attic that Lincoln is responsible for the death of his grandfather and has seemingly not aged in the decades since this has happened. They solicit advice from the wheelchair-bound Sarah Wilfred, who reveals that he and the grandfather had gathered 18 tr trinkets from the most evil people who had ever lived, because they're just in horror. I mean, that's just, <coughs> that's what you do when you're wealthy and old, and you have, I mean, uh, grandkids that live with you. Like, I never really understood the relationship and the setup of that household. Yeah, it was a hobby. Lincoln had stolen the items and then sold his soul to Satan because he wishes to bring about the end of the world because somebody has to. This is his rationale, by the way. Now, he has to feed a soul to each of the evil figures trapped within the wax statues. This is also somehow connected to Haitian voodoo. Don't ask why. <laughs> there is one black person in the entire movie, and he's painted to look like your racist grandpa's image of a Haitian voodoo priest. It's not great. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty upsetting. But, I mean, it's the 80s. Mark and Sarah sneak into the museum for some arson, and by arson, I mean they brought two refills for Zippo lighters, and that's gonna do it. It's like less than 20 ounces. Sarah ends up gravitating towards an exhibit dedicated to the Marquis de Sade. This has been seeded throughout the film. This film is actually pretty good at this sort of thing. She's really into the Marquis de Sade exhibit the first time she sees it in the opening sequence, and then... While they're in the attic rummaging through the newspaper clipping, she comes through some of the Marquis de Sade's poetry, and there's a glowing light that enraptures her. Anyway, she finally comes under the spell of this exhibit, whereas Mark is thrown into the zombie display by one of the butlers. 
Mark is attacked by the zombies, but he discovers that none of the monsters in the exhibit can harm him if he doesn't believe in them. This is Jareth from Labyrinth Logic, I guess. So he's able to escape and breaks into Sarah's pit, where she is being whipped to orgasmic death by the Marquis de Sade. This scene is interesting because as soon as he breaks in, she's just like, please keep hurting me. And he unties her and she just goes to the Marquis' knees and she's like, don't let him take me away from you. I want to be whipped to death because it hurts so good. Yeah, it was interesting. Like, as a young woman seeing that scene for the first time, it's just kind of hilarious because he's like, are you jealous that she felt her first orgasm at the end of my whip instead of you, boy? And it's very clear this is a college girl. Like, there's no way. There's no way that that was her first orgasm. I mean, it's possible that she's a virgin. Some people make it to their, you know, late 20s, sometimes even their 30s without doing that sort of thing. And hey, more power to them if that's what they want. But yeah, I have a hard time believing that she's never come before. You can still be a virgin and experience an orgasm. Right. Anyways, he eventually manages to get Sarah to snap out of it and they escape. Although this incurs the wrath of the Marquis de Sade saying that they will meet again. Foreshadowing. Dun dun dun! Lincoln and his goons capture Mark and Sarah the instant they get out of the exhibit, and James and Gemma are returning. They get sucked into the various exhibits, which means that the 18 figures are done and all of the monsters get to escape. One of the skeptical police officers, I forgot to mention this because it's a pretty extraneous plot point, in between the scenes I just described, he snuck back in to investigate further and gets pushed into a mummy exhibit, ends up getting locked in a sarcophagus, so he's dead. Yeah, but I mean, you get to see him twice later on in the film. Well, you saw his arm grow about. It's probably not his arm. So all seems to be lost, but Sir Wilfred busts in with an angry mob of fellow old people. Yay! Including Mark's butler. And this is the scene that we had first seen when we were teenagers. Just this one point on. So from this point on, there's just this giant melee battle between various elderly people armed with improvised weapons fighting stereotypical horror movie monsters, and it's actually pretty awesome. Lincoln's butlers and the corrupted teens are all slain in this fight, which bothers Mark and Sarah a bit, but, you know, they're consoled by the fact that they're actually freeing the souls of their friends. Mark has a sword fight with the Marquis de Sade. He is taken down. Fortunately, Sarah is able to kill the Marquis de Sade by throwing a hatchet at his back. You know, like any teenage girl that's gone through a self-defense training course. I mean, I learned how to do that at a young age. Mark and Sarah are confronted by Lincoln, but Sir Wilfred shoots him. Wilfred is then decapitated as a werewolf as Mark and Sarah escape the crumbling museum. Lincoln had fallen into wax that looked like milk at this point. Yep. As the totally not a model museum uh, burns down, a scuttling zombie hand emerges from the rubble in the final shot. Thus, giving you some sequel bait. Also, it's pretty much one of the best characters in the movie, aside from Sir Wilfred. And that is it. Okay, because this film came out a lot more recently, and, you know, didn't have to go through a painstaking restoration sequence like the original Waxwork, because that film was targeted by the Nazis because they considered it to be a degenerate art project because it's expressionistic. Uh, we have more information about this one. The script was written by director Anthony Hickox over the course of three days. <laughs> That's such a surprise. His principal concern wasn't that it would be too much like the 1924 Waxworks because it's not. 
Really? It's not? That has nothing to do with the plot that you just described a little while ago? He was afraid that it was going to be too much like the Monster Squad, which had come out the year before. Okay, I can kind of here. If any of you are young or missed out on 80s baby staples, the Monster Squad is kind of like the Goonies, except the Goonies have to fight your, your, your typical Halloween monsters, like a gang led by like Dracula and includes the Frankenstein monster and the mummy and the wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And it's not a very good movie, but if you're my age or like five years older or five years younger, there is a chance that you came across a battered VHS copy in your youth and watched it a whole bunch of times and are fond of it anyways. Yeah, don't rewatch it now. There's really problematic scenes with what they do with his sister. It's, it's pretty upsetting. This film was turned down by just about every studio approached by Hickox, including Vestrin. However, the script got into the hands of Vetrin's head, and he was apparently very fond of it and gave it the go-ahead. Uh, got a budget of about three and a half million dollars. He's my kind of guy. Now, the special effects were supervised by Bob Keane, who spent eight weeks doing 18-hour days building all of the monsters from scratch. He does a really good job considering Jeepers. Yeah, considering it was a total rush job, those monsters look pretty freaking great. Yeah, even the Ewok werewolf. Yeah, in in general, just uh, I was just pleasantly surprised by how great the set dressing looked, the gothic castle, and the Night of the Living Dead zombie sequence that had that billowing smoke and the black and white, and none of it looked super expensive, but it looked very, like, DIY garage filmmakers doing the best they can with what they have and subsiding on talent and stick to as Principal Skinner would put it. I w- <laughs> Sorry, you got me with the Simpsons reference. I would definitely say that it looks like a devilish diorama. I had to do it. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Yeah, some of the displays couldn't be used. He had built a display for the John Carpenter version of The Thing. Also, five children from the Village of the Damned. (gasps) No! I love those movies! Yeah, they couldn't get legal clearances for it. They also had one for Jason Voorhees. Actually, there's a really funny connection to that. I didn't know that. Kane Hodder, who played Jason a lot, like he did a lot of, like, um, he's a huge stuntman. He, he did a lot of work for uh, Waxworks. I, my DVD copy is signed by him. That's really funny. Yeah, they couldn't use Voorhees, so they replaced him last minute with the Phantom of the Opera. That's why that scene is so short. <laughs> the missing children on the posters in the police station are also the same posters from The Lost Boys. Really? I had no idea! Yeah, they wanted to make that an overt reference, a little Easter egg for the horror movie nerds couple other things. The zombie scene uh, was shot in one night. Most of the severed hand bits had to be filmed in reverse just to save time. The final fight was supposed to be a lot more elaborate with like Mark and Sarah running through time and space, but like the 1924 Waxworks, they ran out of money, so they just kind of had to bang something out. That entirely explains the sequel. Yeah, we'll be getting to the sequel in a bit. For that, we're going to talk about the cast of this. First off, Zach Galligan. He is Mark, our main protagonist. His main attribute being that he's this immature rich boy who wears polo shirts with blazers that clearly don't fit him. We want. Galligan's main regret in this film is that the director kept telling him to tuck his shirt in. I guess he's very self-conscious about his stomach. That's really sweet. It's like kind of like, oh. Yeah, you probably know him best as that kid from Gremlins. 
yeah, that's entirely what everybody's gonna know him from. Nobody's gonna anybody that's even seen Waxworks isn't gonna know him from Waxworks. Deborah Foreman is Sarah. She's something of a screen queen. She's in this because she was dating the director at the time, and it apparently turned ugly and ended very badly, which is why Sarah is played by a different actress in the second one. Uh, apparently, Hickox had approached her, and she said, no, I don't want to see you again. Yeah. Now, the main villain in this is David Warner, who, if you're a millennial, he is the recurring bad guy in all of your pop culture. He's the bad guy in this. He's in Time Bandits. He's in Tron. He's in Titanic. Uh, he's in multiple iterations of Star Trek. If you saw this man walking down the street, you would cross the road. Yeah, he's in Batman the Animated Series, Freakazoid. I, I, I read an AV Club interview that like questioned him about the entirety of his career. Uh, he is particularly warm about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, because that's like the only time they allowed him to be a good guy. He's a scientist who helps out the turtles, he even gets to say cowabunga. And like, honestly, that kind of melts your heart a little bit, doesn't it? Just like, aw. Well, he's also Admiral Boom in the Mary Poppins Returns film. That's kind of a good guy. Yeah, okay, I'll give it to him. He's at least a charming nuisance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for this film, they only had him for two days, so they had, they had to be very judicious in what scenes to have him in. Like, it's not immediately obvious that they didn't have him for terribly long, because they, they, they spread him evenly throughout. Yeah, it's not like, you know, the, the shark from Jaws. Ah, there it is. And just something about that voice, when Sarah and I were going through uh, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, filmography and we got to North by Northwest, James Mason is the main bad guy in that, and his henchman is played by David Warner, and just Sarah looks at me and says, I could watch an entire movie of just them two talking to each other. She says, those voices, they could just be reading the phone book. <laughs> It'd be fine. But the last person I wanted to mention was Patrick McNee, who is Sir Wilfred. A bunch of people were approached to play Sir Wilfred, including uh, Michael Gow, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Donald Pleasance. They all turned it down. Big surprise. While waxwork is well-regarded amongst cheesy horror aficionados, I'm under the impression that if any of those immediately recognizable horror movie actors were in this, and also they got to use jo Jason Voorhees after all, this film would be a lot higher in one's estimation, just, just by those superficial changes. Yeah, probably would have landed outside of the cult classic section at your uh, local video store and into the actual horror shelves. Yeah, the film's reception, I read a lot of contemporary reviews of this one, and while most of them skewed negative, I was a bit surprised that people seem to like this one, at least by movie critic standards, and I do think it is very stylish. I was expecting this to be very, like, cheaply thrown-together rush hack job, but... Yeah, Hickox is a, had a lot of dialism in what he did. Uh, there were all these low-angle shots in the scenes where that increased the atmosphere. He had overhead shots to do, like, billowing curtains in order to make the Dracula bits look more gothic. And most of the close-ups had a purpose to them, other than the bit where, you know, Sir Wilfred is there to give expository info dump, and you just kept framing extreme close-ups of everybody's faces where you could count their nose hairs. That was a bit weird. But other than that... Very good cinematography and scene blocking. Much better than I expect from a film like this. No, the scenes where you just had, like, instant, like, horror faces, that didn't sell you? <laughs> 
like I said, its budget was three and a half million. It grossed eight hundred and eight thousand dollars in the United States. Uh, either it did much better in Europe, or it did extremely well on home video and late night cable shows, which is what these types of films are meant for to begin with. But it did get a sequel in nineteen ninety two, Waxwork Two: Lost in Time. Hickox and Galligan return. Bruce Campbell is also in it. Oh yeah, he does an amazing job with the um, Hill House scene. I'll have to take your word for it because I haven't watched Waxworks 2. It's okay, you don't need to. I'm not surprised. Okay, uh, before we wrap things up, I'd like to compare these two films together because in theory, one's a remake of the other one, and while you have nothing, there's there's something. I actually, I have a list of five things these movies have in common. Okay, let me have them. Okay, you ready? Okay, now tell me, like, yay or nay if you agree with me on these ones. Okay, number one. Lots of fabulous, over-the-top mustaches. Yes, you're right. I mean, one of the vampire butlers in the Dracula scene in the 1988 one has this big old Salvador Dali mustache, and it's very distracting. Which is amazing, because he's basically scene-dressing, and he steals that shot. Yes, he does. Okay, number two. Uncomfortable and oftentimes confusing romances. Yes, but that could just be horror films in general. Although... As you said before, the 1924 waxwork is only kind of a horror movie. The Arabian Nights bit is just sort of this doopy, tyrannical comedy. The Eye from the Terrible bit is arguably torture porn. The spring Jack is pretty horror, though. Yeah, um, but I think a lot of that has to do with, like, a double exposure and not being able to quite tell what's going on the whole time. Dream logic. Also, our budget is shit. Ooh. Okay, number three. The male lead is aggressively bland in both movies. Yeah, that's fair. Mark, in the 80s film, he does have that polo shirt to protect a personality of sorts, and he reads comic books and drinks orange juice at the breakfast table while he complains to his mommy about how she isn't taking him seriously, even though he's still living in the mansion, despite the fact that he's a college student at, what, 27? Right? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> All right, and um, so that brings us to number four. All right. Both movies had jaunty beats. I really enjoyed the soundtrack in both of them. Yeah, we had our choice of soundtracks for the wax work because it's in the public domain, so a lot of people have improvised soundtracks. There was an original score written for it, but we ended up going with the sort of electronic trap beats meets jazz score for uh, the one that we watched. Apparently, there's another score that was written by members of Mr. Bungle, but I couldn't find it. You know what? Next time. We'll, we'll try that again in the future. And then the last fifth thing that this movie the movies have in common the female protagonist's name they're both named sarah oh right although i I think she's referred to as zana in the 1924 one i tried to find information about the actress who played her and i couldn't dig up anything i really really enjoyed her 1920s like teeny tiny eyebrows I, i there's something about that that's just phenomenal to me i love those Whereas in most 1920s films, especially German ones, they just lay on the eyeshadow usually. Oh, yeah. My points of comparison would be, well, the original Waxwork from 1924 is an anthology film, whereas the 88 one is sort of an everybody-on-the-dance-floor crossover jam, which are related constructs. <laughs> the second one has everything from Dracula to Audrey II, who is also a body snatcher. They, they, they get confused about that one. I do think that there is some parallels between expressionism films of the 1920s and the exploitation films of the 1980s. Both of them 
for example, use style to cover up their lack of budget, which seems to be a motif I keep driving into throughout this commentary. And another one uh, bit is that neither of them were particularly considered high art in their day, but people seem to be revisiting them and uh, giving them more status than the people who even made them were giving them back in the day. I don't think Conrad Veidt or Paul Lenny or anyone involved in wax work was under the impression that people would consider this stuff to be art a hundred years from now. I mean, who knows? Who's to say? And yeah, another thing is just getting through the uh, differences between a silent film and a talkie. Waxwork, for example, gets to be a bit more dialogue-driven. <laughs> Big surprise. Well, there are a few zingers in the 1924 uh, Waxwork, like Send That Dog of a Baker to Allah, or something like that. Yeah, that was pretty close to it, yeah. Yeah, sure showed him, you incredibly Caucasian caliph of Baghdad. What seemed weird to me, though, was that a lot of times to drive home a point, they would ask a question but then never answer it. It was just pantomiming after that. And since they couldn't tell you what the dialogue was, they have to just go really out there. And because we are modern audiences, we just go, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Singing in the rain. Okay, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything else you wanted to bring it up, or is that a wrap? Not really. That's pretty much, I feel like that covers it. I feel like we probably did a bit more than either of these movies deserved, honestly. But Waxworks is still a delightful movie, and it's going to hold a place in my heart for pretty much ever. And on that note, that is another episode in the can. Good night, everybody.